Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. 2020 surrounds us with challenges, pandemic, economic hardship, racial tensions, protest, violence, a contentious election season. Who can rescue us? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Exodus with this sermon entitled A Rescue Story for the Ages, which covers Exodus chapter 14. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. We all love uh, a rescue story, particularly a good rescue story, and particularly a rescue story uh, that just felt as though there was no way out. There was zero chance that there was any way out. The protagonist of the story is surrounded at every turn. He's, he or she is hemmed in back against the wall in the corner of the wall, uh, looking around in every direction, not seeing any way out. There's hopelessness that is set in. There's panic that has set in. Fear like we've never felt before. Doubt that there's any way in which there could be a solution. And then seemingly out of nowhere, the rescuer comes. The rescuer shows up, and we all rejoice. We've seen it played out time and time again in movies. Perhaps even now you're thinking about a superhero. You're thinking about Superman or Spider-Man or Wonder Woman or whoever it may be. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, I remember how that happened then in that movie at that situation. But the story that pops into my mind is not in a movie. It's real life. It was in 1990. I was in sixth grade. I grew up in this small town where football is king. And so a part of growing up in this small town is that pretty much every family went to every game and uh, even the away games. So this particular game, we're, we're at this small school about 30, 45 minutes down the road called Hamilton High School. And as, as a sixth grader, one of the things you're most concerned about at a football game is not the game. You're not watching the game all that often. Maybe every now and then you look up. But what you're doing is you're trying to find your friends and you're walking around the track. At least that's the way you could do it back then. You're all around the stadium and you're playing here and talking here and meeting up with people here and so forth. And so my buddies and I had met up and we were just making our way around. And at one point, apparently we were on the other side and somebody saw us and thought that I had said something to him, or I'm not sure to this day what happened, but all I know is that we're back over on our side of the stadium, and we're sitting down at the very bottom of the, of the stands in the bleachers, and we're just talking, and the next thing I know, I have someone tapping me really hard on the shoulder and then jerking me up by my collar, and I turn, and it's a, it's a teenage boy, probably four or five years older than me, and what felt like twice as big as me, and he's, he's yelling at me, and he has his finger in my face, and he's telling me what he's going to do to me, which involved caving my face in. I have no idea why. And he's, telling, he's saying, I know what you did, and I know what you said, and I know. And it's dawning on me, he thinks I'm someone else, because I certainly would not pick a fight with this guy. My friends are not coming to the rescue. I'm not sure that they even stuck around. But here's how I felt in the moment. I felt hemmed in. I felt like there is no way out of this. I remember being absolutely terrified and convinced 
that I am about to get beat up. And right as I thought this guy was about to unload on me, out of the corner of my eye comes the rescuer. And it was my dad. My dad and mom had been sitting up in the higher part of the, of the stands and had looked down and seen what was going on. And my dad at the time was about the age that I am now. And he was uh, in much better shape than I am now at that age. He was a bit of a muscle guy at that point and big arms, big chest, not a guy that you want to mess with. And he comes in and he turns this guy to him and says, I'm not sure what's going on here, but you got to go. And the guy begins to argue with my dad. And my dad put him in his place, didn't hit him, but it became really clear really quickly who was in charge. So there was a part of me that went from terror to rejoicing. And I don't even know if my dad remembers this story, but I've never forgotten it. I've never forgotten how he stepped in and saved the day when I felt completely hopeless. I might have peed my pants just a little bit. I never told anybody that because sixth graders would never tell their friends that. However, I was terrified. My dad takes me back up to the stand, sits in with him, and he's upset with me because he's thinking, what did you do? And I, I told him, I have no idea. I didn't do anything. I've never seen this guy before in my life. But he was there, and he rescued me. Many of us, it may not be a similar situation to that, but we know we've had situations where, if not physically threatened, certainly emotionally, we feel like I can't take it anymore. The hopelessness is set in. We feel hemmed in at every side. We feel like I cannot get out. There is no escape. Can there be someone that would rescue me from this? Many times in our lives, perhaps even right now, we feel it. The fear feels overwhelming. What used to be little whispers of doubt that were embedded deep in the corners of our heart are now flowing out of us like, like we didn't expect. And what used to be little whispers of doubt are now perpetual screams of fear and terror and oh my goodness. But I want you to hear a truth this morning that at first may not sound like good news. You may go, is that supposed to help me? We see it in the scriptures over and over again, and we're certainly going to see it in our passage today. Here's what you need to know. The sovereign God is the one who hems us in. The sovereign God is the one who puts us in circumstances where we feel like there is no way out. The sovereign God is the one who puts us in those situations and in those circumstances so that we will come to our wit's end so that we will come to the end of ourselves and we will recognize like never before that we can't save ourselves. That there is a redeemer who only in bringing us to those points of desperation, of doubt, of fear, and only bringing us to those points do we see his redeeming grace and his inexpressible power on exceptional display for his glory. It's part of what's happening in this story here, in this book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we've, uh, we've covered a lot so far. We're picking up today in chapter 14, which is the infamous story known both within the church and 
outside the church is the parting of the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea. At some level, it feels, feels unbelievable maybe. We doubt, did this really happen? But we see the heart of our God. And we see the ways in which he delivers his people, not just here, but throughout the pages of Scripture. And once we begin to see who God is and all of his splendor and all of his might and all of his majesty, we, we see, oh, yes, this happened. This is nothing for our God. In fact, what we see at the Red Sea is just a foretaste of the grandeur of the redemptive work of God to come. You see, Exodus is a story of redemption. It's not only a story of redemption, the story of Exodus, Exodus is the story of the Bible. When you, when you look at the, the book of Exodus, you see that God is, like we've talked about already, God is revealing himself as the redeemer, not just the redeemer of Israel, but the redeemer of all nations, even the Egyptians, many of which left with Israel in the Passover, who are crossing the Red Sea with them. But what we see in the story of Exodus is we, is we pull out from it and we look at the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, uh, we see that this is the story of the Bible. That God is revealing himself as the one who redeems against all odds, the one who is the rescuer for all ages, the one who in all the ways in which we think there is no hope, there's only hope, there's hope in only one, in God himself. And so we zoom back in, not just to the story of Exodus, but to the, the chapter 14 of Exodus, crossing of the Red Sea, and we see that the story of Exodus is encapsulated in the account of the crossing of the Red Sea. One of the things I want you to see in Exodus is I want you to see that there's a thematic progression of the events leading up to occurring in and after the crossing of the Red Sea that are uh, emblematic, that are allusions to that same progression in, in Scripture. That if you know the story of Exodus and you know the rhythm of what God is doing in this book, you know the story of the Bible in many ways. Let me show you. Three times, for, for example, that we see this, this rhythm, this progression of what God's up to. The first one is in this account, the Exodus of Israel. And in chapter 13 that we're not going to dig into today, uh, but, the, but chapter 13 is a, is a chapter of preparation for what's to come. So let me show you. So you have the Exodus of Israel. There's a time of preparation. Now chapter 12, where we were two weeks ago, when Caleb taught through the Passover, this is the great infamous story of God delivering his people through a series of plagues that ends on the greatest plague of them all, which is the death of the firstborn, unless, unless there's the blood of the lamb of the doorpost of the homes of those who trust in Yahweh. And so it's only through the, the shed blood of a lamb through which the angel of death passes over and there's deliverance. But there's a preparation here in chapter 13 between chapters 12 and 14 where God says, okay, here's what you need to do to ready yourself to leave. God has, har uh, has hardened the, the heart of Pharaoh, and he's told Pharaoh, uh, or, or Pharaoh has responded to God's plagues, and he has told God, he has said, okay, finally I will relent. 
and he lets the people go. And as the people prepare and leave in chapter 13, we pick up in chapter 14 and Pharaoh has said, oh no, what have I done? We've lost our labor force. And it says that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh again, but in a different way to go after the people of Israel, not to bring them home back, but in his anger, in his pride, to pursue them unto death. So what we have in chapter 14 is you have preparation in chapter 13. Chapter 14, we have the actual deliverance of God's people. The culmination of this delivering redemptive act to where they are delivered once and for all through the the waters of judgment onto dry land on the other side of the sea. And then chapter 15, once they're on the other side and once they're looking back, what are they doing? They're rejoicing. Why? Because they realize that we now have new life. So chapter 15 is this celebration, this newness of life where chapter 15 recounts for us. You you probably have a heading in your Bible called the Song of Moses. This is a song that the people of Israel sang led by Moses once they were on dry land and they're looking back and they see that the enemy, their adversaries have been consumed in in the waters of wrath of God, if you will. And they say, it's time to celebrate. Rejoice, we are now free once and for all. Now there's two more places, two more big places that we see in Scripture where this same rhythm occurs. And I want you to, in your mind, I want you to pull out and I want you to think of the whole Bible because what we see is this. Secondly, it's in the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ. You see this same pattern of preparation, deliverance, and celebration. The preparation is really the rest of the Old Testament. It's the law and the prophets where what God does is he leads them out of the Red Sea, but where does he take them? He takes them to Sinai, to Mount Sinai. We'll get into this in a couple of weeks. Now, why does he take them there? He takes them there to give them the law. Why? For two primary reasons. One, to show uh, the heart of God. This is what it looks like to follow me. These are the things that I care about. This is what the people marked by God look like. How we live, but secondly to realize we can't do it. The law ultimately condemns us. The law ultimately shows us our sin because we realize time and time again that I cannot live out those commandments. I can't do it. And so God gives the law and then he gives the prophets and the prophets and the law both speak to something, someone greater who is to come. This one who was promised early on in the book of Genesis is now coming more and more into focus in the prophets. And the prophets are saying there's one coming, there's one coming, there's one coming. And he's the one who can fulfill the law perfectly. He's the one who is the great hope for humanity. He's the one who can in every way live the life that we cannot live. And he's the one who is the final, the once and for all Lamb of God, who with the blood spilled for us, we paint over the doorpost of our hearts so to speak, that in the same way Israel went free from the tyranny of slavery of Egypt, we get to go free from from the tyranny and the slavery of sin, the oppression of sin, the power of sin, the dominion of sin. We don't go free yet from the presence of sin, but that's coming. But there's a deliverance that happens only 
through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so that deliverance is made available to you and to me to believe upon this Jesus, this Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world, the one who was perfect in every way and took the wrath of God upon himself in our place in every way and who defeated death for us in every way. And so as we embrace this Jesus, as we embrace the one who went through the waters of judgment himself, who allowed him, himself to be uh, covered with the judgment wrath of God on our sin, much like the, the Egyptians way back in that day, as we realize what Christ has done for us, we trust in him by faith. And when that happens, what happens? We have newness of life. We celebrate. We rejoice in the finished work of Jesus. We rejoice that he's the one who does it all for us. He's the rescuer who when we were hemmed in in every way, when we were caught at every corner, when our hopelessness had reached an unthinkable level, he provided a way. So we celebrate and we say there's newness of life only in Jesus. It's called the church age. It's the age that we're in now. As we're on this side of the cross, we're able to celebrate in full what Christ has done. But there's a third rhythm to this scripturally. And the third one is the second coming of Christ. In the second coming of Christ, there's a preparatory work being done. And it's now. It's also the church age. So the church age is, yes, looking back at what Christ has done. It's, yes, looking, being on the, uh, the, the shore, having crossed and been accepted now into the presence of God through the finished work of Jesus and rejoicing and looking back at what he's done. But there's also a looking forward. There's a, there's a preparatory work in the church age that says he's coming again in the presence of sin that is still with us will be gone once and for all. And we will be fully made new and glory upon glory upon glory in the presence of the glorious one will be our reality for those who have trusted in Jesus. And there's so much to look forward to. And the question becomes, how are we preparing now? We're celebrating, yes, but we're also preparing. We're preparing for his return. We're with urgency pursuing those around us who have yet not known him. And we're eagerly anticipating the day when that deliverance comes in full upon his return. The return of Jesus when he comes riding on the clouds and he comes to make all things new and all things right, to usher in the new heavens and the new earth and everything that's broken and everything that's sad becomes untrue. So we celebrate. We'll celebrate on that day in the new heavens and the new earth. This new life that we have, that we get a taste of now, on that day when he returns, we'll get in full. Now do you see how this story in Exodus is the story of the Bible? There's a, there's a preparation work being done in us right now, much like chapter 13 of Exodus. Where he told in chapter 13 of Exodus, we won't read it, but he told him, he basically said, hey, gird up your loins, which is a way of saying, get ready. Be ready. Be ready to go into battle. He said, carry your weapons of battle with you. They're probably going, why? Pharaoh said we could go. 
And he, say, he says, uh, listen, don't, don't eat any leavened bread, only unleavened bread, which we don't have time to get into it, but that was a way of saying, look, we all have to be on the same page here. There has to be unity among us, even the slightest bit of disunity of not trusting God and the way that he's going to deliver us will make its way throughout the entire camp. There has to be oneness and trust of faith and camaraderie and unity. We have to be on the same page together in this preparatory work for the deliverance that is to come. And then chapter 14, he does it. And we'll zoom in next week. By the way, this is part one of a two-part focus on chapter 14. We'll zoom in next week on how he does this and all the beautiful ways in which it's pointing to the redemptive work of God throughout all of the scriptures in the, in the splitting and the parting of the Red Sea. It, it's going to be awesome. I'm excited about it. I can't wait to teach that to you, but we're, gonna, we're not going to get there quite yet. I'm going to leave you hanging today. But then you get to the other side. And even now as believers in Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, there's this incredible rejoicing that's taking place where we stand on the seashore looking back at what Christ has accomplished. And we just say every day, every day, every day, every day, I will praise his name because he has delivered me from slavery, from sin. But every day, every day, every day, I will look to Sinai. I will look to the promised land. I will look to what's to come when he comes in full. The story of Exodus is the story of the Bible. It's the gospel story. It's the story of a redeeming God who redeems a people who were hemmed in in every way. Here's what happened to Israel. They left, and they're urgently moving out, and they don't fully understand why. And God takes them a different route. It says in the scriptures that they don't go the route that you would have thought they would have gone, which would have been up towards Philist, uh, the Philistine territory. But he takes them more southwest, or southeast, sorry, in a direction that they were probably really perplexed by. And the next thing they know, and by the way, there's probably about a million of them at this point, okay? It's crazy to think about. What does that look like? But he leads them to the, he leads them east to the Red Sea, to where all they see in front of them is water, and they're probably going, um, what are we doing? And then God tells Moses, hey, set up camp here. And, and you got to know that they're going, <laughs> what? Here? What are we doing? But they do it. They set up camp. And as they're setting up camp, as they're getting settled into whatever life is going to look like for them now, they're trying to get used to that, they look up and they look west, and what do they see? They see the largest, most powerful army in the known world at that time, the Egyptians, coming towards them with over 600 chariots. Can you imagine the dust this being turned up into the air? And they hear the hooves, and they hear the marching and the chanting, and maybe the ground is even shaking, and to the... East water, to the west, sure death. What do we do? I know what we do. We panic. We freak out. And that's what they did. Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Well, yeah, I would too. 
And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, there's a, that's a big statement. They're learning the name of Yahweh. They're learning there is a God who is their deliverer. But look what comes right behind it. This is so human. This is so me. Is, is you cry out to the Lord and then you immediately just go into doubt and fear. Verse 11, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Wow, I'll come back to that in a minute. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Wow. Unbelievable. Unbelievable that God would, that God would say, fear not. I mean, how? How do I not fear in that situation? How do I have water, a, a sea in front of me, and an army behind me, and not fear? And not only that, that God would say, all I need you to do is nothing. Not even talk. Let me fight for you. Here's two things I want you to take away this morning. Here's the first one. The Lord brings us to the end of ourselves, shows us that we can't save ourselves, and then fights a salvation fight for us. That's the gospel, by the way. We think that we can save ourselves. We think that by religious duty, by, by moralism, by all the activity of church, by all the ways in which we think we need to be good, we can save ourselves. I was talking with a neighbor yesterday who's serving another neighbor who uh, is, is, has a bad diagnos diagnosis with cancer. And this neighbor that I was talking to had just driven him to the hospital for a 14-day uh, regiment in chemotherapy. And as they were on the way to the hospital, uh, they began talking about what if I don't make it. And this neighbor who's sick uh, had grown up in a belief system where he thought it was all up to him. He thought it was about his morality, about his goodness, about his religious activity, about how many times he repented and all these kind of things. And he thought it was on him. So you can imagine the despair of the conversation as he's on his way to the hospital wondering if I'm going to make it out, meaning am I going to die? And he thinks, oh, it's up to me, it's up to me, it's up to me. Have I been good enough? And, and the despair was thick, according to my neighbor. My neighbor who knows Jesus was able to share the beautiful gospel of grace with him and say, brother, it's never been up to you. You were condemned the moment you were born taking your first breath because you were born into sin. If there was any hope to make it out, you lost it before you were even born. There's only one hope. There's only one way out. There's only one deliverer. There's only one rescuer, and it's not up to you. He's already done it. He's done it all. He's provided the way out. He is the one who crossed through the waters of judgment for you. And the only thing I need you to do is nothing. Believe. Believe upon the one. Believe upon the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. His name is Jesus.
Oh, but it can't be that easy. I mean, surely there's something. No, no, no. It is that easy. It is that simple. And when you stand on the other shore, on the other side of belief and faith in Jesus, you receive his Holy Spirit and you have newness of life. And you realize, oh my goodness, I didn't have to do anything for this. He did it all. I just believe. Oftentimes, it's only, it's only through bringing us to the end of ourselves before we will finally give up on trying to save ourselves. And we will fling ourselves by faith into the arms of the Savior. And he will do his redeeming work. Can I point something else out to you? You notice how the Israelites would rather return to slavery than follow the Lord? I got a good grief. It's 1150. All right, here we go. I got to tell you this. This is what we do. This is what we do. The Israelites are no different than us. We are no different than them. We see the Lord do his delivering work. Hello, 10 plagues to lead you out of 400 years of slavery, generation after generation after generation of slavery, and you hit the first obstacle, and you go, I want to go back to slavery. I want to go back to bondage. I want to go back to my old way. It would have been so much better. That's exactly what we do. We've been delivered into newness of life in Jesus. And yes, the presence of sin is still around, but we're, and we're in this battle, but we've been delivered. We have this new life. We've tasted of the goodness of God that only comes through faith in Jesus. And at the first obstacle, when God says, trust me, this is going to be hard. This is not what you would have envisioned. I'm going to hem you in at every corner, but I promise you I'm your deliverer. I promise you, I'm your redeemer. What do we do? We say, I want to go back to sin because it gave me a sense of security that I thought I, I could just in the moment, at least I could taste it. Take me back to porn. It gives me something that I, I just can only taste in that moment. Take me back to that relationship that's toxic that I knew I needed to be delivered out of. Take me back because it gives me a sense of something that Jesus in this very moment, you're not giving me. I don't want to trust you right now because this is hard. And he says, oh, but it's so much better. Trust me. Trust me. You're about to see something happen in your life that will not come unless you let me hem you in. Why do you want to go back to slavery? There is freedom in Jesus like the world can never provide. We look all around us and we say there's no way out. And, the God, and then God whispers in our ear, but, but Jesus, even if everything falls around you, but Jesus, he's always better. Second thing I want to give you real quickly. I, can't, I don't have time to read it. We'll get back into it next week. But at the end of the story, you probably know it, but I just have to recap it. God tells Moses to raise his hands. The sea split. The Israelites pass through on dry land, drier than, the, than, a, than a dirt road in South Georgia in the middle of a drought. It's completely dry, walled up seawater over here, walled up seawater over here. Can you imagine the fear even as they're passing through? 
But he takes them to the other side, and then he says, turn around, look. And as morning dawns, we'll talk about the imagery of that next week. As morning dawns, he calls the waters to cover the enemy. And they're free. Here's the second point that I want you to take away. The Lord accomplishes the unthinkable to redeem the unredeemable, that they might fear his name and give him glory. The beginning of the story, remember they were so fearful. At the end of the story, verse 31 says this. Verse 31 says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. What are you fearing? There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear going on right now. And understandably so, there's a lot of fear. And there's a narrative that the world has given us. But can I be honest with you? We've bought the narrative. We've bought it. The church has bought the narrative. And the narrative is this. That no matter what side of the fence you're on, you should be fearful. Regardless of who wins this election, you should be fearful. You look this way, you see water. You look this way, you see marching army. You better be afraid. You know what the scriptures tell us? There's only one who we fear. There's only one who we fear, and it's not a fear of trepidation. It's a fear of awe and reverence that incites not panic but trust. Don't buy the narrative. Don't buy the narrative of the world that says you better be in fear of what might happen. Buy the narrative of the scriptures that says fear of the Lord our God, the King of kings who rules over it all. Trust Father, would you give us the ability to do that? Would you give us the ability to trust you, to fear you and you alone? Lord, make us a people. Make us a people who are able to embrace the times in our lives where we feel hemmed in on every side and receive that as a time that we know, that we know you're at work, that we know that you're doing something, that you're showing us the gospel in fresh and new ways, that you're revealing yourself as the redeemer, the one who saves. Thank you. Thank you, O God, our King, that you have delivered us from the slavery of sin, And you have brought us into your family as a child of God. We rejoice in that now, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing to him. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.